I wonder if you've ever felt desperate and in need of deliverance. Perhaps it was an illness from which you thought you'd never recover. Or or maybe your career path closed. The, The money ran out. The relationship crashed. Perhaps you uh, felt very uh, keenly what we just sang just a minute ago. Um, Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Uh, Perhaps you feel what we sang in verse 3. All ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Have you you felt that? Have you felt desperate and in need of deliverance? Where do you turn in the midst of trouble? Who do you trust for deliverance? Through Psalm 54, the the psalm that we're going to study together this morning, we learn that we can trust God for deliverance, deliverance from all of our enemies. As I've, I've thought about Psalm 54 this past week, I've, I've thought about this psalm in light of Christmas. You know, we're in this study of a few psalms, thinking about Christmas in light of these songs, in light of these songs and prayers we cry out to God while we're waiting for Him to come. As I've thought about this psalm in light of Christmas, I've thought about it in terms of deliverance. It, psalm 54 is about David waiting to be delivered from trouble. And from one perspective, Christmas is, is all about deliverance. When we conclude these, uh, this service, we'll sing these words. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. When you think of Christmas, do you, do you think of deliverance? Do you believe that you need to be delivered? Christian, do you believe that you have been delivered? Do you believe that you have been delivered from all of your enemies? And do you give thanks to God for his deliverance? This is what we turn now to think about in Psalm 54. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Psalm 54. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you can find this passage beginning on page 475. 475. And as we begin our study of Psalm 54, let's think carefully about its original context. As you can see from the ascription, if you've made it there in the psalm, this psalm was written by David. So we read there, um, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? From a, a big picture perspective, this clue lets us know that we're looking at a psalm that was written in the portion of redemptive history where God has formed the people of Israel as a nation. He's called them out of Egypt and called them to live holy lives unto Him. He's brought them into the land of Canaan. God has even given the people of Israel, at their request, a king. His name is Saul. And in one of my favorite uh, Christmas albums, he was foolish and strong and he didn't last long. Saul, he was the, the reigning king of Israel. But he was not the right king. As a friend of mine put it, Saul rejected God as king, and so God rejected Saul as his king. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. 
But David was. And at God's direction, David had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. David was God's chosen king. David was the king in waiting. And he was the king in hiding. Saul had gotten word that David was to be Israel's next king, and he was not happy. He chased David all over the place, seeking his life. He wanted to kill him. And many of the Psalms in the second book of the Psalter recount this period in David's life, the period when, really, he's on the run. 1 Samuel 23 gives us the historical background of this psalm. While David is on the run from Saul, he takes refuge among his own people, the tribe of Judah, in the town of Ziph. David shared a kinship with the Ziphites. They were of the same tribe, they were of the same family line, and yet, as we see here from the inscription, they betrayed him. They told Saul that he was hiding among them. And we'll dip into that background as we study Psalm 54, but we need to be careful that a sermon on Psalm 54 uh, doesn't become a sermon on 1 Samuel 23. We need to hear the distinct message of Psalm 54. Every word in God's Word has a distinct role to play in the unfolding redemptive story. Uh, Psalm 54 contributes to this history by presenting us with a prayer from God's anointed king. God's anointed king has been betrayed by his own people and he cries out to the only one who can deliver him. He cries out to God. I wonder, is there another king who comes to your mind? A king who is betrayed by someone close to him. A king delivered up by his own people. I hope that you're thinking of Jesus. He was the king he was the king in waiting, and he was waiting to be crowned. He was the king who was rejected by his own people. And he was the king who was betrayed and delivered by one of his own disciples. It's interesting that the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, has uh, set aside the reading of Psalm 54 for a reading on Good Friday. I think that is wise and observant. Brothers and sisters, I, I also want to encourage us to think about this as we think about Psalm 54 and Jesus as the king who was betrayed and delivered by one of his own disciples. I think that if you want insight into the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was here on earth, I think that you need to look no further than the Psalms. As we hear these words from David's lips, we need to hear them on Jesus' lips too. For it was Jesus who said in Luke 24, 44, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And brothers and sisters, we need to know this about our Savior. He is one who can sympathize with us. You have cried out to God in anguish, haven't you? You've cried out to God begging Him to act. You've called out to Him for deliverance. You've confessed that you felt betrayed. So has Jesus. And he understands. And with this in mind, let's read Psalm 54 now. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. 
in your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The themes of this prayer are thoroughly interconnected because in the end, this is one simple prayer. It is a prayer where David brings his trouble to God, trusting God to act and pledging his thankfulness in view of his certain deliverance. This is the message of Psalm 54. When in trouble, trust God and give thanks for his deliverance. When in trouble, trust God and give thanks for His deliverance. We'll study Psalm 54 in three sections under three headings. Trouble, trust, and thanks. Let's begin with our first point, trouble. Here we're looking especially at the first three verses. Just take a look at those first three verses again. O God, save me by Your name, and vindicate me by Your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. From these verses, it's not hard to hear the terror in David's voice. He is afraid in the midst of this trouble. So he calls out for salvation and vindication. He calls out for God to give ear and hear his prayer. And he tells us why. Because he is oppressed in his life, is in danger. Those who care nothing of the honor of God are after David. He needs to be delivered. His pleas and petitions are simple and straightforward. And they're also parallel. In verse 1, save me. Those words, save me, is parallel or parallel to vindicate me. Similarly, you see, by your name is parallel to by your might. Parallels continue there in verse 2. Here is parallel to give ear. And prayer is parallel to the words of my mouth. This is a feature, I think, of Hebrew poetry that you need to be familiar with as you read the poetic literature of the Scriptures. It's called parallelism. Uh, and it's generally pretty easy to spot. I think it's easy for us to spot here. And the goal of, of parallelism is, is not to confuse you but really to bring clarity to precisely what the poet is trying to communicate. A poet generally makes a point from, from one angle, and he makes the same point from just a different angle. Parallelism not only helps us to see the issue at hand with greater clarity, it also helps to see the issue at hand with greater urgency. Let's remember that this is a prayer, a pleading from David, especially in this kind of prayer where you're hearing, it's a, it's a desperate plea made not only once, but twice. It's like when a friend says to you, please, Please, would you do this for me? Here David is asking God to save him, to deliver him from trouble. He's asking God to vindicate him, to defend him from an unrighteous pursuit of his life. And one of the striking emphases that's traced throughout the latter chapters of 1 Samuel, when David is on the run from Saul, is that he is innocent. He was never a threat to Saul's throne. Saul is jealous for no rational reason. Then again, when the illusion and idol of power takes over in our hearts, when the illusion and idol of control takes over in our hearts, we do not tend to act rationally. 
Notice too where David so clearly locates the possibility of salvation and deliverance. David doesn't trust himself for salvation. Doesn't look in, look deeper in and pull himself up. No, he entrusts himself to God. He recalls God's name and God's mind. And in bringing up God's name, he's, he's bringing up the reality that God has tied his name to his character and to his people God reveals His character in His name. God first revealed His name to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush where He identified Himself as, I am who I am. And when David prays, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might, he's, he's praying, Yahweh, be to me the God that You are to Your people. The God who delivered His people from slavery in Egypt by a mighty and outstretched arm. You remember God's might revealed in the plagues, His power revealed. Remember how He saved His people and vindicated Him through those ten destructive plagues. David is casting himself upon this God, our God, the only God. Have you asked this God to save you through His power and might? You cannot save yourself. You cannot work harder. You cannot do better and earn your way into God's good grace. This prayer from David is a prayer from a man at the end of his rope with only one hope, God. Is that you? Have you asked God to save you? Have you asked this God to hear your prayers? That's what David does there in verse 2. He asks God to hear his prayers because his situation is desperate and he needs to be delivered from it. That's what verse 3 tells us. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. I think we need to pause and kind of take in just how painful it would have been for David to write and pray these words. In fact, that word Selah, it's a, it's a musical notation and a number of scholars think that its purpose was to indicate a kind of pause. You know, in music, a strategically placed pause will very often allow you to stop and kind of reflect on what you've just sung. Think about what David is saying here. He's calling the men of his own tribe, his own family, strangers. They're, they're not family. They're not kin. They've turned on him. And you almost wonder if David has identified Saul as the ruthless man. And think about David's relationship with Saul, too. David used to be a member of Saul's house. He would play the harp for Saul. He was best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David used to be welcomed at the house of the king. And now he's sought by the king. Friends and family have become enemies. Has that ever happened to you? Children, youth, young adults... Have you ever had a close friend or family member turn on you? Or at least feels like they turned on you. It's painful, isn't it? Wrecked relationships are a part of life in this messy world. When you find yourself heartbroken over friendships that have failed, call out to God like David did, like Jesus did. Ask Him for the strength to make His, great and His name great, even through those situations. Talk with your parents about how to draw near to Christ even when it feels like everyone pushes you away. 
Notice that at the end of verse 3, David makes a spiritual judgment about his enemies. They do not set God before themselves. Pleasing and serving God is not their chief love. They do not honor God, nor do they respect Him. They live without concern for God. David is saying this about a clan within the tribe of Judah. He's saying this about people who understand themselves to be the people of God. Do you understand what David is saying here? Not all of God's people are God's people or live as God's people. Some things never change. Some in the church today profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. What about you? The people of Ziph were willing to give up God's king, the right king, to the reigning king, the ruthless king. What about you? Are you willing to give up Christ? Are you willing to give up Jesus? And you don't have to give up Jesus to some ruler, some governmental official, or some office holder. You can give up Jesus for another ruler, for, for money. Isn't that what Judas did? He gave up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Let's be honest, money rules many of our lives sometimes. You can give up Jesus for power and prestige and prominence. You can do this by forsaking time with Him each day and making time for those things which will get us ahead. You can give up Jesus for your career. You can give up Jesus for pleasure and comfort and a, a certain lifestyle. You can give up Jesus for the love of another. The truth is, Christian, we are all, all of us, are in danger of giving up Jesus. We're all in danger of betraying Him. We all have idols in our hearts, rulers beckoning us to forsake Him for them. What is it that gives you safety? What is it that makes you feel secure? What is that, that one thing that you wish you had? That if you, you know, if I just had this, everything would be okay. That is a ruler asking you to be a Ziphite. That's an idol asking you to give up your king. Don't give him up. Don't give up Jesus. Give up your idol. It's a ruthless ruler. It will destroy you. But we need to give ourselves really to the inverse of what the Ziphites and Saul did. Look at the end of verse 3 again. This was so striking to me. They do not set God before themselves. See, they, they put God, they put themselves before God. They put themselves in the first place rather than the last. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They lived as, as practical atheists. They don't love God, so it's no surprise they don't love His anointed one. They act and live in accordance with a sense of God's absence from this life. Is this us? I mean, maybe it is. May I ask you, do you tell God your troubles? If not, why not? Is, is it because you don't believe He cares? No, you know He cares. Well, why don't you tell God your troubles? Is it because you don't trust Him? No, that's not it either, is it? You, you trust Him. Think, why don't you give God your troubles? Why don't you tell Him your troubles? Is it because you don't believe that He's strong enough to do something about it? No, with, with David, you believe he is mighty. 
Why don't you tell God your trouble? Is it because you're living like an atheist? As one who's a stranger to God? If, if we wish to avoid living as those who do not set God before themselves, if we wish to avoid living as those who place ourselves before God, then we need to set God before us. That's what it means to live the inverse of the latter portion of verse 3. We need to set God before us each day. Just drink that in. Set God before us. Let's put Him before us. Put the details and the duties of the day after Him. Let's make Him and His pleasure our our treasure. And this will not happen by accident. We must give ourselves to setting God and His glorious character before ourselves each day. And I think it begins early in the day. And that is what David does in verses 4 and 5. When in trouble, he trusts God. He sets God before his own eyes. So let's turn and consider our second point. Trust. And as we do, let's read verses 4 and 5. Let me read verses 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. See that word, behold. Look, David. Take a good long look at God. He is your helper. Do you see what David is doing here? He's preaching to himself. Remember the character of God, David. He, he is your helper. He, he's the one who comes to the aid of his people. Uh, this, uh, this form of the word helper is used more than 80 times in the Old Testament. It can refer to military assistance or personal assistance. And notice how personally David is applying this word. God is my helper. You pray like that, mine. He's mine. Claim him as yours. Isn't this precisely what David needs to do when he's being betrayed? When he's about to be given up and delivered up to death. You pray like that. You preach to yourself like this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a preacher in London during the mid-20th century. Served as the pastor of Westminster Chapel for 30 years. In that time, uh, he wrote a book entitled Spiritual Depression. Uh, in that work, Lloyd-Jones identifies that we often have the problem of listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. We listen to our thoughts of bitterness and resentment. We, we listen to our fears and so we're tempted to spiral into discouragement and despair and depression. And Lloyd-Jones says that part of the answer to this quandary is that we should preach to ourselves, to stop listening and start preaching. But if that's the case, what should we preach? Well, we should preach God's word to ourselves. Preach this word, brothers and sisters. Especially in times of trouble and trial, preach and pray. God is my helper. God, you are my helper. Save me and vindicate me. He is the helper of his people. He, he helped them when they were enslaved in Egypt. He helped them when cornered at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them. He helped them in the wilderness with nothing to eat or drink. He helped them at Jericho. He helped them in so many ways. And parallel to the second half of verse 4 is, is this phrase. The, the Lord is the upholder of my life. 
David is entrusting his life to the Lord. He's confident that God will uphold his life. How can David be confident that God will uphold his life? He's, he's cornered in this city. Because he is God's anointed king, he, he's not yet crowned. That means he's, he's got to live long enough to be crowned and rule. So in faith, David is clinging to the promise of God. He is entrusting himself to God. God will make a way for David to escape the clutches of Saul. And indeed he did. Earlier I told you that we turn over to 1 Samuel 23. Read from that chapter. So let's do that now. So keeping one finger here in Psalm 54, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start reading in verse 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find that on page 246. 246 of uh, the Bibles provided. As we begin to read from 1 Samuel 23, what you need to know is that David, he's, he's on the run. And in fact, while he's been on the run, he's been rescuing, defending, and fighting for God's people. He has just saved the city of Keliah uh, from the Philistines, sorry, Keilah. And, and Saul, uh, Saul doesn't thank him for that. Instead, he chases him from the city of of Keilah to the wilderness of Ziph, uh, and that's where our, our story picks up. Let's begin reading at verse 13, uh, sorry, 14 there, and, and as we read, keep your eyes out for the betrayal and for the deliverance. Verse 14, and David, uh, sorry, I need to find my place, and David, there it is, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of, of, of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come to seek out his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, in the, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all of the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And a messenger came to Saul saying, 
Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So you see here in these verses, we see David, he escapes to Ziph. Jonathan comes to meet him and to encourage him. Jonathan reassures David that he will be king. Clings to that promise, David, Jonathan tells him. And this is the encouragement that David receives right before he's betrayed by the Ziphites. Right before the psalm. Brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to encourage one another with the precious promises of God. We are going to need them when trials come. David needed this encouragement from Jonathan to keep persevering in faith and clinging to the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, make it a point to encourage one another. You know, we, we quote Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 all the time here at Arlington Baptist, and it's worth quoting again. Listen closely. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are you considering how you can stir others up in love and good works? Are you making it a priority to meet together? Are you encouraging others as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ and final deliverance? Who are you going to find after the service today? Who are you going to find and give a word of encouragement to? Who this week are you going to make sure you, you write a note to in order to strengthen their hand in God? Let's give ourselves to doing what, what Jonathan did in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. Strengthening a brother or a sister's hand in God to receive encouragement, to receive encouragement, Really, you're going to have to share your discouragements. And to give encouragement, you're going to have to know another's discouragement. You know, we stand around and talk after the service, and that is that's hugely important to getting to know, to getting to know one another. So we can extend words of encouragement, so we can strengthen each other. This is what we need. Well, 1 Samuel 23 tells us that David, he's betrayed by the Ziphites. They tell Saul he's, he's hiding among us. Saul tells Saul and his men are closing in on David. He's cornered. And how does God deliver David in a, in a really almost a comical way? How does he uphold his life in the words of Psalm 54? <laughs> through Philistines. He does it through Philistines. Saul has to leave and go and defend his people and David escapes. That was a divinely orchestrated deliverance. God used the Philistines to distract Saul and to deliver David. What is striking is that Psalm 54 appears to have been written before this deliverance comes. Turn, turn back to Psalm 54. That's page 475 of your Bibles provided. Turn back to Psalm 54. Here we see that not only does David trust in God, preaching to himself that the Lord is his helper, but in verse 5, we see that David even trusts that God will return the evil to his enemies, to, to put an end to them, he says there. Now, when we read verses like this, we're tempted to think that David, he's being vindictive. But that's the farthest thing from the truth. No, David is simply praying for God to make his justice and faithfulness known. Remember that the Ziphites are not, and Saul for that matter, they're not innocent. They unrighteously seek David's life. 
Together they seek the life of an innocent man. And David acknowledges their evil in verse 5, praying that the plot, the evil plot that they have planned would come crashing down upon their own heads. This is a prayer for justice. And it is not wrong for the people of God to pray for justice. You don't want injustice to continue, do you? No. So pray for justice. We can pray for justice in this life. And we should pray for justice. We must pray for justice. What we must not do is take matters, take justice into our own hands. This is what we're told in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never, keyword there, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will, certainty, I will repay, says the Lord. So we can pray, Lord, repay. Bring justice. That's what David prayed. And did you know that David, he did not take justice into his own hands. You know, after that incident in 1 Samuel 23, David had a chance to kill Saul the next chapter in 1 Samuel 24. David refused to harm Saul. He could have brought an end to the ruthless pursuit of his life, but he did not avenge himself. Then two chapters later in 1 Samuel 26, David had another opportunity to take Saul's life. And yet again, he refused to harm Saul. Instead, he trusted God and left justice in God's hands. He believed and lived, verse 5. And we should too. The people of God do not seek revenge. We seek refuge in our God. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Brothers and sisters, run into God. When in trouble, we should trust God. But that's not all we should do. We should give thanks. We should give evidence of our trust through thanks. This is the third and final point we want to think about from Psalm 54. Thanks. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. With a free will offering... I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So here the psalm, it comes full circle. David promises to bring a freewill offering to the Lord. This is this offering is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 16 to 21. And the essence of this offering, a freewill offering, is that it's, it's a voluntary sacrifice to God. And the purpose was to express gratefulness to God for His kindness. And, and we can see that in part through the parallel, the second half of verse 6. I will give thanks. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord. Does that remind you of anything else? It should remind you of verse 1 where David said, Save me by your name. See how David's kind of bookending this psalm with the name of God? David's trusting in the name of God, the might of God for His deliverance. He will give thanks to God's name. He will sacrifice. In this desperate situation, David is looking toward the future in faith. How often do we do that when we're, we're desperate? Often we're caught up right here in the moment, aren't we? We're not kind of looking ahead. What, what do we have ahead in the Lord Jesus Christ? How often do we look ahead when we're desperate? How often do we preach to ourselves about our final and ultimate home with the Lord? We should think about the deliverance that we have from all of our troubles, all of our enemies, all of the troubles of this world, and our, our welcome 
into the new heavens and the new earth, when and where there will be no trouble. David has not yet been delivered. That messenger telling Saul about the Philistines has not yet come. And told Saul, you know, the Philistines, you really need to go. David has not yet been delivered. And yet in the midst of this crisis and desperation, David, he keeps his eyes on the future. He's trusting, he's so confident in the fact that he will be king. Remember, Jonathan reassured him, he will be king. He's so confident, in fact, he speaks of the deliverance as though it is a thing that has already been accomplished. That's what jumps out in verse 7, right? For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye, it's the eye of faith, has looked in triumph on my enemies. You know, some have suggested, honestly, that David's language, it's just too certain, right? And therefore, it must have been written after his deliverance. They suggest that really verse 7 kind of looks back on the past. That could be. But honestly, I'm persuaded that David penned this prior to his deliverance from the hand of Saul. Well, I think one commentator put how I feel about this. He put it really well when he wrote, Faith sees the future as present. Mm. Faith sees the future as present. This psalmist, surrounded by strangers seeking his life, can quietly stretch out the hand of faith and bring near to himself the tomorrow when he will look back on the scattered enemies and present glad sacrifice. That power of drawing a brighter future into a dark present belongs not to those who build anticipations on wishes. That's not what we do. We don't build our anticipations on wishes. It does not belong to them, but to those who found their forecasts on God's known purpose and character. Do you found your forecast on God's purpose, His character, His name? David, he, he knew the promises of God, the promises that he would be king. When God gives His word, it is so certain that he lives his life as though it's a thing that's already been accomplished. Though the deliverance is in the distance, the end has already been decided. Is that not the very nature of the Christian faith? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Such a perspective reminds me of what, Jesus, uh, what was said of Jesus one chapter later, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, there we're told that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He knew what would follow on the other side of the cross. He knew it would be triumph over his enemies. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Through his cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, Paul said. Verse 7 tells us that David believed that God would vindicate him in his power. Verse 1. And God did vindicate David. Eventually Saul met his end. And those who opposed David were put to shame. You can read about that particularly at the end of 1 Samuel and some in the beginning of 2 Samuel. God publicly put down the reigning king. And he raised the right king to the throne. He delivered, from, he delivered David from every trouble. And he made him triumph over his enemies. Did you know that God has vindicated Jesus too? He did. Jesus was vindicated by God in his resurrection. That's how the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus' resurrection in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He talks about it in terms of vindication. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up 
in glory. You hear how Paul charted Jesus' redemptive work. He moved from Jesus' incarnation to His resurrection to His ascension. He was manifest in the flesh, incarnation, vindicated by the Spirit, resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory, ascension. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was how God saved Jesus from death and vindicated Him. God did not let His flesh see corruption, as we read about in Psalm 16, 8 and Acts chapter 2, verse 27. You see, until Jesus' resurrection, death reigned as an undefeated foe. Jesus, He was holy. He was far more innocent than David. Yet on the cross He was made sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And as long as He remained under the power of death, cornered in that tomb, the righteous character of His person and work remained in question. He needed to be vindicated. And the removal of death through His resurrection was the confirmation, the vindication, justification, declaration that He was in fact righteous. He was innocent. And since Jesus Christ's righteous life was vindicated, since He has been declared to be just by His resurrection, so can we. As we receive His righteous life on our behalf by faith. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friend, if you're here this morning, I want to invite you to come and know and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that we have all sinned against God. Unlike Jesus, we are unrighteous. We've all rebelled against God and betrayed Him. We've all decided that we wanted to rule our own lives rather than live under His rule. We've wanted to be king. When God and God alone is king. And that's just what sin is. It's the rejection of God's rule in our lives. And the truth is, is that we all deserve to have our evil. Yes, we have committed evil. We all deserve to have our evil returned to us. We all deserve to be put to an end, as Psalm 54 says. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That is what our betrayal and sins deserve. But the good news is that in love, God sent His one and only most beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect righteousness and obedience before God. Sadly, like David, Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by one of His own disciples, and because of that, He died on the cross, bearing the sin and the punishment due to sin for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus was delivered over to death and raised up from the grave three days later so that we might be delivered from eternal death and raised from our graves on the last day. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to put your trust in Him. To trust that you too can have deliverance from your deadliest enemy, your sin. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust Jesus for your salvation, what it means to call out to Him for deliverance from every trouble, from eternal trouble. And please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. All those who trust in Christ, all those who trust in Christ have been delivered from all of their enemies. Maybe that sounds strange to you. Maybe you think to yourself, but Mike, 
You know, we, we face so many difficulties in this life. There are so many enemies in this world. I'm, I'm even battling enemies within my own heart right now. How can you say that we've been delivered from all of our enemies? Well, the truth is that we live in the same tension that David lived in when he wrote this psalm. David's deliverance was certain, and so is ours. In fact, our deliverance has been accomplished. We are simply waiting for it to be finally realized, for Jesus to come and to make all things new. Just as David had to wait in faith for deliverance, so do we. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Jesus has defeated death and the devil. He has defeated and delivered us from all of our foes. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Yes, we still face hardships in this life. Yes, we still suffer. We face pain and peril. We face broken relationships and unfulfilled dreams. We face sickness and sin. By these things, we are backed into a corner and made desperate for our final deliverance. We may face trials, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and the sword. We may even die. And yet even the hardest hardships in this life are part of the path of our deliverance. Because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.37, in all these things. He's saying in the trials and the distress and the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, and the facing of the sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Did you hear what Paul said, Christian? He did not say apart from all of these things. No, Paul said in all these things. We are more than conquerors. Notice that Paul said we are, are, present tense. We are more than conquerors. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And here's the key. Through Him who loves us. Through our faith union with Jesus, we are assured that death will not get the better of us, but that we will get the better of death. One day, we too will stand in triumph over death, having been raised from our graves. So you see, we can trust Jesus in trouble because he has secured our deliverance. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, In the world you will have certainty. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome all of our enemies. He tells us to take heart, to trust him. That's what Peter encourages us to do in 1 Peter 4. Do you remember the scripture passage from earlier in the service? Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Why are we surprised by trials, brothers and sisters? We're told about them over and over again, but we are, aren't we? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, that suffering comes first. Suffering comes first, and then glory. But glory does come. 
That was the path for David. That was the path for Jesus. This is also the path for believers. So what do we do? We, we live 1 Peter 4.19 and Psalm 54 verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When you're suffering, are you asking yourself, Father, how can I be glorifying your name by doing good for you? Brothers and sisters, in whatever trouble you face, entrust your soul to your faithful creator and do good. That's what David did. That's what Jesus did. Trust Christ and give thanks. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. The message of Psalm 54 is that when in trouble, we should call out to our God for deliverance, to trust Him and give thanks. We must live with hope for the future in the present. Our future is certain. Our future is glory with Jesus, one who loved us and loves us still. We must give thanks. It is evidence of our faith. It's evidence that we believe we have a future glory coming. This is what makes believers strange to the world and a precious treasure to God. Our faith honors Him. We, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, are to give thanks in all circumstances. What do we give thanks for? We give thanks for our deliverance. We give thanks to God for the grace of His presence. We give thanks to God for the strength of His Spirit. In the midst of our troubles, we even give thanks for how God is using trials and troubles to teach us to trust Him and to transform us more into the likeness of Son. We thank God for these trials that are fitting us for heaven with Him. We do that now. We do that with faith and with thanks. Let's pray together.